If you have Bibles with you, please open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Wasn't worship great today? I really enjoyed listening to Lydia and to, to John. I was really, really blessed. And I felt like there was just, you know, there was grace and favor on the, on the song selection. They really ministered to my heart. And at one point, you know, if you notice, I, I kind of ping back and forth in the back usually during worship. I'm just trying to, <coughs> excuse me, I'm just trying to hear God and, and kind of tune in. And sometimes that helps me. I don't know why. But then I came and sat up over here, and I had an unusual memory from, from my childhood. Um, back in New York City, Channel 7 was the ABC network. And on Saturdays, they would have, Saturdays or Sundays, they would have the wide world of sports, ABCs, the wide world of sports. And every week, they would have the same intro, and part of the intro, they would show all these different sports figures doing what they do, and, and they would cover the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And on the agony of defeat part was this guy trying to do a you know, ski lift jump, and he, you know, he tries to stop in the middle. You know, if you're on a ski jump, you can't stop in the middle, and so his body all went awry, and he fell off the side. Was that an American thing only, or did, they have a, did you ever see that here? Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple of hands seen. All right, so... Uh, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, why? I haven't seen that in a long time. <laughs> why would I remember that uh, this morning? And I just felt like it, that God wanted you to know. He wanted me to know and wanted me to share with you is that he's been with you. He's always been with you. That he's never, ever left you or forsaken you. Every one of us here, we've had the thrill of victory. There's been that time, that moment in our lives. We've been at the, we've been at the very top of the mountain. Everything was clicking, everything was working, everything was going right, and, it, you know, and we got to enjoy that moment. And it's, and it's probably true that each of us, at some point or another in our lives, we were like that guy going down the ski lift. And, and we, knew, we know all too well the pain, the pain, the deep pain of the agony of defeat when for all of our training for all of our best efforts for whatever in that moment we we crashed and burned and maybe like that poor guy it's just been replayed every weekend again and again and again and we wrestle with that sense of brokenness that sense of well that sense of failure and i felt like the lord wanted me to remind you of this that he's been with you then it wasn't that he just celebrated with you when you were on the, you know, the, when you were receiving the gold medal, when you were standing, getting, receiving the trophy and everything was hidden. He's been with you in those worst of days. He's been with you in those worst of days when for none of your own fault, circumstances worked against you. And in those times when despite what our heart really wanted to do, we make foolish choices and things don't work out and then we suffer the consequences of those choices. I want you to know today, if you're enjoying the thrill of victory this morning as you sit here or the agony of defeat, that God loves you lavishly and extravagantly. I want you to know that he never changes. The word of God says that he is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. There's no wavering in him. We waver all over the place. At least I do. He never wavers. And that not only does he love you perfectly, 
That's all he can do because he is perfect love. He's the very essence of love. It is the, it is the substance, it's the foundation, it's the fullness of his nature and his character. God is love and that never changes. There's a nothing you can do, good or bad, to change the depth, the degree, the quality, the steadfastness of his incredible love for you. So I just want you to know today, good or bad, high or low, victory or defeat, God loves you. He loves you, and he's with you, and he's for you. Okay, prophetic commercial over. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Hey, that might be the best that I offer you today, so enjoy that. Uh, today is my sixth and most likely final message on grace. I might have one more in me. But um, so far we've seen in this series on grace that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We've learned that where sin abounds, grace superabounds from Romans 5, 20. Uh, we've learned that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace from Romans 6, 14. We're no longer under the rules, the religious rules and regulations of the Hebraic law. There is a new covenant between God and man. And it's not based on the law. It's based on grace. We are under grace. From Romans 12, 6, we learn that we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And the last time we were together, a few weeks ago before the snowstorm, from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that God's grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in weakness. And this morning we're going to take a look at grace again from a, a, another angle, a different angle. We're going to take a look at grace from what Scripture refers to as the throne of grace. From Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. So you can follow along on the screen or if you have your own Bible at verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would illuminate your word for us today. I ask that you would give us what you said you would in your word. Give us the spirit of truth that would lead us into all truth, and that truth would set us free. Lord, let truth in your word be revealed to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, so some context. I really um, am opposed to the... I don't like to take scripture out of context. I don't like to just cherry pick verses and not give some kind of setting for them. And so the context here in Hebrews 4, the book of Hebrews, the author is unknown. Um, most seem to lean toward the, the possibility that it was Paul who wrote it. The, the, the tone of it, the, the style of it, people lean toward St. Paul, but nothing that I've seen Nothing the commentators I read are able to definitively decide that, yes, Paul was the writer of it. 
but the style and content kind of leans that way. And also the date isn't specified like we have in other letters, but it's probably written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, um, only because the author consistently refers to it in the, in the present tense. So a little bit of backstory on the, on the book. Hebrews appears to be a, a written sermon directed to Jewish Christians uh, at the time. These Jewish Christians who were considering, they apparently were in some kind of internal wrestling match, but they were considering whether or not it was worthwhile to hold on and be a Christian any longer. Anybody else ever been there? Have you ever been at a point in your life where you, where you had to, you were honestly trying to decide, am I going to continue with this Jesus? I, I've been there. I've been there. I remember when we moved to, to West Virginia to, to plant a church, first time we ever left the, the safety of home, New York City was home, and, and it cost us everything. We, we sacrificed greatly. Um, and, you know, I took like a 60% pay cut. I had a great job with a great future. And um, I was at a church where I had incredible favor, could do anything I wanted. It wasn't like I was running from a terrible situation to a wonderful situation. It was, it was sacrificial. And so we went there at the leading of God, and, and we, we knew it was him, and we saw his hand at work at, at lots of different points, but we hit a really rough spot. That people who said that they, that they would support us and that they were for us, it turned out that they had terribly uh, betrayed us. And where I thought that things were going to go in one direction, they just, they just weren't working out that way. And so I, I was planting this church, and I was working a secular job at the same time. And I got to that place where, where my expectations were so dashed, and things had worked out so differently than the way I thought they were, I was mad at God. Man, I was mad at him. I was frustrated. I was disappointed. And I'm like, I don't know if this is worth it. I've given all this up, and look at where we are right now. And so at the time, I was working for uh, Northrop Grumman. It was an aerospace contractor, and, and they had a plant in West Virginia. And I was a hydraulic brake press operator. Was, I don't know, 30 ton, 50 ton. They had a couple of machines. And I would bend metal into shapes and parts that would be used on... Uh, usually on military aircraft. So I'm working all day. I'm bending parts. And, I'm, and I, I knew that I was at a, a crossroads. And I had to decide, am I going to follow God? Or am I not going to follow God? And for the first time in my life, and I've been following Jesus a long time, for the first time, it was a real question for me. And I decided that since I got to that place, I wasn't just going to brush it off. I was going to wrestle with that thought all day long. I wasn't just going to, I wasn't going to be religious about it. I would say, oh, you know, bless God, you know, this trial will pass and I'll just follow him. That's not, I wasn't in that place. I was like, I don't know if I trust God and I don't know if I want to follow him anymore. And I, I wrestled with that for about 12 hours. And then like God usually does with me, he used a song <laughs> to to wiggle past all my defenses and touch my heart. Now, as angry as I was at him, having Christian music playing at my, at my station was a life-saving thing for me. Music was usually a comfort, and I was allowed to play whatever music I wanted in my little section by the hydraulic brake press. And 
And I put cassette tapes, this was a while ago, right? So I had some cassette tape playing. And, um, and an old song, it wasn't a new song, it was a song from when I first accepted Jesus, came on. And um, some of you probably remember it as well. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And I get goosebumps thinking about that moment. I get goosebumps right now thinking about that. And because that's the point where I was at, and suddenly the, the light came back on for me amidst the fog and the questions like, I already made this decision. Long time ago, I made the decision that I was going to follow him. And so not ignoring my disappointments or my pain or my frustration, but, but in, the, in the midst of them, I made the decision I was going to follow Jesus. Well, that's where these Hebrew Christians are right now. They've accepted Jesus, and it gotten tough. It gotten real tough. Chapter 10 of Hebrews makes it clear that they'd suffered great persecution for the faith in the past. You can only imagine, right? Here, here we have the predominant religious influence of the day. It's not only what the faith that they believe, it's their cultural identity. It's, it's their national identity. And people are choosing to follow this new, upstart group of people. I'm not even sure they were called Christians at that point, but that's what they were. The fact that they struggled persecution was clear. The specific nature of it's not made clear in the text. It's possible that they'd face some new type of persecution or maybe rejection at the hands of their, their Jewish family members and friends or Maybe they were just looking for an easier option than following Jesus in the context of their current culture. Either way, it appears that these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, had been considering a return to Judaism as a way to lessen the tensions that they lived under. Whatever the cause, the temptation was severe enough to prompt this letter. Now, we could all use some encouragement, no? We could all especially use encouragement at hard times. This letter was written to encourage these persecuted Hebrew Christians. Chapter 3, verse 6 tells them to hold on. Chapter 10, verse 23 says to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What does it mean to hold on unswervingly? It means when everything else in our life is swerving around, we hold on unswervingly to the hope that we profess. In chapter 10, verse 36, there's the exhortation, the encouragement to persevere. Now the theme of this, this letter um, is, is the superiority of Jesus. The Hebrews is a marvelous portrait of Jesus Christ as seen through the lens of the Old Testament. The, the author's intent is clearly to show the superiority of Jesus over the prophets, over uh, the recorded angelic visitations, even over Moses and the priests and the high priests and the whole Old Testament system of following God. That Jesus was indeed absolutely the new high priest, the new sacrifice who, established, who has established a brand new covenant between people and God. 
And you can break chapter 4 down into two sections, two parts. The verses 1 through 13 speaks of a promised rest, while the remainder of the chapter speaks of Jesus as the great high priest. Now, I'd enjoy uh, looking at that first part of chapter 4 this morning, but I don't have time for it in this sermon, maybe at some other point in the future, or maybe you'd like to, to do a study for yourselves on, on um, the promised rest from the first half of chapter 4. Um, instead, this morning, I want to focus just on, on three verses, on, on verses 14 and 15 and 16. So verse 14, I want to see Jesus as our great high priest. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, the idea that Jesus is our high priest has been mentioned before, both in this book, in Hebrews 2.17, if you're taking notes, you can write that down, and in chapter 3, verse 1. But now the writer of Hebrews, he develops this idea of Jesus as a great high priest more extensively. The writer wants to bring to our attention the specific, unique characteristics of Jesus as high priest. No other high priest has been called great. Jesus is called great. No other high priest has ascended into heaven. Jesus has ascended into heaven. No other high priest is or was referred to as the Son of God. This great high priest, Jesus, the author of Hebrews, wants us to understand clearly, is unlike any other high priest these Hebrew Christians have ever experienced. And for that reason, there's the exhortation to let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, knowing that we have a high priest, knowing how unique and how glorious Jesus as high priest is. It's even greater to know that he's passed through the heavens and now ministers on our behalf, seated at the right hand of the Father. Both of these things ought to be enough to encourage them and us to hold firmly to the faith we profess. But it doesn't stop there. There's more. In verse 15, the writer tells us that, that our great high priest can empathize with us. What other religion, what other God do we know of that empathizes with his followers? None. Absolutely none. Our God is unlike any other God. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Now the deity of Jesus, it's well documented in Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 14. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, Jesus' compassionate humanity is clearly demonstrated. So this means that Jesus, God the Son, enthroned in heaven, our great high priest, all that's true, and he can empathize with our weaknesses because he's both divine and human. 
To the Greeks, this was a this would blow their minds. They didn't have a box for this. The primary attribute of a god from a Greek mindset was the essential inability to feel anything at all. But Jesus, that's not our Jesus. That he's not like that. He knows. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you've been going through, whatever you face in the future, he knows. He feels. He identifies with what you're going through. The word empathize literally means to suffer along with, to enter into that suffering. So the difference is just this. Jesus added humanity to deity. He came and lived among us as a man. Remember when we were looking at the Gospel of John? Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God came to us. He became like one of us. He took on our nature. He took on our skin. He lived like we have to live. He knows. He feels. He understands. You know, when you've been there, it makes all the difference. Jesus knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. I remember years ago when the tragedy of 9-11 took place. We were living in Washington State at the time and only been there a short time. We arrived in June and just a few months later was the uh, attack on, the terrorist attack of 9-11. A couple of days afterwards, I'm at a, at a local ministerial meeting. Pastors all gathered and because of the tragedy, about 30 of them showed up. A meeting where usually six or seven showed, 30 guys showed up. And not surprisingly, the topic of the day was, you know, what are people's thoughts and reflections on 9-11? And I can remember sitting in this circle, and, and they started in one direction, about three over from me, and went around this way. So I was one of the last guys to speak. And they, every person who spoke, it was, they had philosophical insights. They had political insights. They had theological insights into the attack. When it came to me, I was, I was pretty offended. I'm like, guys, I've lived. I lived there. I've walked those streets. I've been in those buildings. One of my childhood friends was inside one of the fire trucks that got crushed by debris when the towers came down. For me, this isn't philosophical. For me, this isn't theological. It's personal. And I'm offended at the way you guys are looking at it. It's easy to be philosophical and theological when you live 2,500 miles away. When you've been there, when you've been there, it makes a difference. I remember, most of you know, guys know that John Paul Jackson passed away recently from a really difficult battle with cancer. And I remember some conversations that we had and interviews that he um, that had been recorded of him, and somebody asked him, you know, what was the effect? Uh, what were some of the impacts of your having battle cancer? He said, I can tell you I have a lot more compassion for other people who are battling cancer. You can identify with them in a way you just couldn't identify 
at any other time. It touches something deep inside. When you, when you hear that somebody's going through chemotherapy and you can remember what it's like to sit in that chair with a needle in your arm all those hours and what it suffered and what it felt like for days afterwards, you can empathize. You can have compassion for another person who's suffering those things. Jesus walked in our shoes. We don't have a God who's lived exclusively in some ivory tower looking down from above untouched by the things that have touched us. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Not only has Jesus walked in our shoes and lived where we live, verse 15 goes on to say, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Wow. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and to battle against sin. Our great high priest knows what we've been dealing with. He knows. He understands. He empathizes with us. Now sometimes we might think that because Jesus is God, he can never know temptation the way we know temptation. He was God after all. And I guess in part that's true. However, there's another way to look at this. Jesus faced temptation much more severely than we ever will or ever have been. And it's for this reason. The sinless one knows temptation in a way that we don't. Because it's only the one who never gives in to temptation that knows the full strength of the temptation. Doesn't that make sense? The one who, who refuses to give in to the temptation is the one who knows the full weight, the full strength of it, because he endured it all the way through. Now, for those of us who've, who've suffered under temptation and yielded to it, we, we endured it to a point, and then we gave in. <laughs> Jesus never gave in. So he got the full measure, the whole length. Jesus knew the strength and fury of temptation in a way and to a degree that we never will. He knows what we go through. And he faced even worse. We have a God who knows our sufferings. It's profound. It's just mind-blowing. And it's really significant for verse 16. Verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us then. That's saying, in light of the previous statement, because of what's already been stated, the fact that he knows, he understands, he empathizes, he's walked in our shoes, he's suffered what we suffered, because of that, let us now. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Most translations use variations of the word approaching the throne of grace with some form of the word confidence. Some translations use the word boldness. Young's little translation uses the word freedom. Let's approach his throne of grace with freedom. The Amplified probably states it most comprehensively. Let us then fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace. Because we have a great high priest who is all-knowing, 
who's all-powerful, and who's full of compassion. For those reasons, we can come fearlessly and confidently and boldly before his throne. I remember years ago being at a conference and a speaker named Larry Randolph, someone I would call a friend, tells this story that I think illustrates pictorially what it means to come boldly and fearlessly and confidently. He talks about having Christmas at his house and, and uh, his three grandsons, all you know, maybe ages uh, you know, five, six, and seven, or six, seven, and eight, that, that age range, come to Grandpa's house on Christmas morning. Grandpa opens the door, and the three kids come bursting into the house. He said, one kid dives headfirst under the tree into all the gifts, and there's a frenzy of Christmas wrapping paper everywhere. He said, the second grandson goes to the refrigerator, opens it wide, and he knows that there's good stuff in there, and he's going after all the good food. He said, the third kid, third grandson, has his hand in the grandma, grandpa's pocket up to his elbow, right? These three kids, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate behavior in your house, they know what it's like to come into grandpa's house fearlessly, confidently, and boldly. I love that picture. I'm thinking I might be that kind of grandpa. I don't know. We're not there yet. But I love that picture. There's no fear. That's fearless, right? Confident? Of course, if you've got your hand in grandpa's pocket up to your elbow, there's a certain level of confidence that you have, right? Freedom? Boldness? Oh, my goodness. I love that picture. Love that picture. The enemy wants to discourage us from considering that in any way, shape, or form that we have this unlimited access. It seems to be one of his central strategies. He wants us to consider Jesus as somehow unapproachable, and nothing could be further from the truth. Often we're encouraged to, to come to God, to come to Jesus with some form of an intermediary. Maybe it's a minister or a priest or a pastor. Maybe it's prayers to Mary or to one of the saints. We need no mediator. That job has been filled, and he's doing a great job. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. We don't have to go through channels. We don't have to go through loops. But we were away, we went and visited Nadine's mom on, on our trip south, and, and it, was, it was great to see her. She has, um, she has Alzheimer's pretty bad, and, and so, uh, so usually when we go and visit her, there's five or six excited moments. Oh, how good it is to see you, and so, so we celebrate five or six times because she forgets that we were there, you know. <laughs> but it reminds me of a story, she's Catholic to the core, and before she was in a nursing home, she would watch the Mass on television every day, and that was fine. And, and you'd, we'd go visit her, and, and in her bedroom on top of the dresser, there was, there was candles and about every Catholic little statuette you could imagine. And so she would, she would pray to all the saints. Now, she knew where Nadine and I were coming from, and when she would visit with us, she'd come visit our church. And she told Nadine this one time. She says, I pray for you and Tom all the time. She says, I pray for Tom that the people will like him and that he'll give them good sermons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we thank you, Mom. 
And, um, and she says, but I want you to know, when I pray for you guys, I only pray to Jesus. I don't pray to the saints. <laughs> she grasped a little bit this whole concept. There's no other mediator. I just thought it was the sweetest thing in the whole world. Look, I got good news for you today. I got really good news for you today. If you're on the mountaintop or if you're in the valley, if you are living the thrill of victory or the agony and defeat today, I have got good news for you. We have, you have, a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who took on our flesh and walked in our shoes, one who empathizes with our weaknesses because he's endured all the temptation we have and more, and overcame it. This Jesus sits on a throne, and we can approach his throne boldly, confidently, and fearlessly, because it is a throne of grace. The throne he sits on, the word of God calls a throne of grace. The throne of God is a throne of grace. It's a place that when we come, we receive mercy. We find grace. And the scripture says we find it in our time of need. Now in that time, rabbis would teach that God had two thrones. A throne of mercy and a throne of judgment. They said, they said this because they knew that God was both merciful and just. But how could these two attributes of God be reconciled? I'll tell you how. They were reconciled at the cross. Prior to the cross, I can understand how they might think that there were two different thrones, one of mercy or one of grace and another of judgment. But here, in light of the finished work of Jesus, in light of the cross that we'll celebrate, we'll remember this week, celebrate Easter next Sunday, we see mercy and judgment reconciled into one throne, what the writer of Hebrews defines as, labels as, states as the throne of grace. A grace that does not ignore God's justice, justice because the cross, the cure for sin, it operates perfectly synchronized with the justice of God. And at this throne of grace, we find help in our time of need. We have an amazing God. Whatever your need, I don't care how big, it doesn't matter how small, He loves you enough that you can come before His throne of grace and find the help you need in your time of need. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? Where are you at this morning? <clears throat> Maybe you feel like I do sometimes. You ever feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag? Do you find yourself in what Hebrews 4 calls a time of need? Do you find yourself in a time of great need? I have such good news for you that we have a great high priest to match our great need that he's walked in your shoes and he can empathize with you this morning. That not only can you come to him now, 
But because of the cross, you can come boldly and fearlessly and confidently before his glorious throne of grace. That's good news. That's set. It's established. It's done. It's truth. It's where we're at right now. It's a spiritual condition. It's the spiritual environment that we live in. So if you, if you are here this morning, you've been, we've been snowed out for two weeks. If you're at the Charlottetown Vineyard this morning and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm in a time of need. I'm in a time of great need. Maybe you don't feel like it's the thrill of victory. Maybe you feel like you're living with the agony of defeat. Maybe you have some need that only you know about. If you need prayer this morning, could you just stand and let's pray. Let's together, as the body, let's come boldly and fearlessly and confidently before the throne of God, this throne of grace, and pray that God will meet you in that very place of need. Do you have need? Actually, please stand. That's great. Now, if, you're, if you're standing near one of these people and you want to lay hands on them, that would be great. Just put a hand on the shoulder of a friend, church member, or neighbor. And let's pray. Father God, because of Jesus, because the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, because of the truth that's written in Your Word, because of the truth of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 and 16, Father God, we come boldly, confidently, and fearlessly before your throne of grace this morning. We stand before you, O oh God, and we stand in the gap on behalf of our friends. Lord, look at our friends right now. Look at them. Look at where they are. Look at the circumstances they're in. You alone understand their circumstances even better than they do, far better than we do. Lord, I ask that you would intervene, that you would work on their behalf, Lord, I ask that from your throne that you would speak a declarative, a creative word. Speak what is not as though it is. Speak into existence, O oh God, the healing, the miracle, the need that our friends have. I ask, Lord, that you would stretch forth your mighty right hand, that you would take hold of our friends, and that you would lift them up high above their circumstances and set their feet firmly on a rock. Set them on solid ground. Do it, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would intervene, that you would reshape and reorganize the path in front of them. That your mercy and your grace, your great love, that hope, like a bulldozer, would go before them and clear the way. Make a way where there seems to be no way. We ask for divine and supernatural intervention. Lord, we ask you to come and do the things that only you could do. Come and do God-sized things on our friend's behalf. As it were, Lord, we stick our hands deep up to our elbows in your pocket. And we ask, Lord, for your resources to be spent on behalf of our friends and our loved ones. And Lord, in your great mercy, would you do a quick work? Would you come and work and move quickly? Do it, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen? Amen. God bless you guys today. Please remember the truth of God's word. Yes, we have an amazing God who sits on a throne. But don't forget this. The throne that our God sits on, the word of God says, is a throne of grace. And his grace is for you. Amen? Have a great weekend. See you throughout the week.